This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Education. I'm your host, Julie Callio, and I'm here today with Pam Wollner, Senior Lecturer in Education at Newcastle University, to talk about her edited book, School Design Together, published in 2015 by Rutledge. Pam, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for talking with us today. Hello, thank you for asking me. Pam is an expert in understanding and developing learning environments, particularly the use of participatory research methods to engage and empower users to share their experiences and knowledge. We're delighted to have her here today. To get us started, Pam, could you tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to study school design? Hi, well, I was coming at this from an education perspective. I was briefly a maths teacher and then I went to do a PhD um, in maths education. And I was so I was an emerging researcher, I suppose, early career researcher. And it was just at the time when suddenly everyone in the UK started talking about school buildings, which they hadn't been doing before. We had a problem with old buildings that were falling to pieces. People have been completely overlooking the, the built um, environment of schools for years and years and years. And suddenly we had a government that was interested and was prepared to spend a bit of money on this. So we had the Building Schools for the Future programme. And as I say, people were interested and willing to fund research. And initially, this was a literature review that um, we carried out here at Newcastle, although um, the main main author is Steve Higgins. That was because he was he was running the, the research group I was part of. Um, but I did most of the reading because I was the research associate on that on that piece. So that was nice. Um, and I think it must be said, it's always helped that my first degree was in psychology. So I think I did bring a sort of a bit of an understanding of at least one way of approaching this sort of thing, because I mean, there is environmental psychology. But I really rapidly realised that school buildings spans a much bigger area than just environmental psychology. But that is the problem that um, the sort of impacts of the built environment is, you know, there are people with views on this and ways to research it, ideas about ways to research it. Um, who are based in as environmental psychology in education to a certain extent, although people in education often forget the building, um, and obviously in sort of architecture and design. Um, then there's facilities management, they're interested in school, but, but all, again, very different perspectives, very different ideas about what, what are the important problems, what are the issues, and there was also a lot of politics turn, tied up in this, I, I presume there always is, and certainly in the UK, um, setting, you know, building schools for the future was the brainchild of a very particular government. And when the government changed, 
um, we had to have a change of school buildings program. And there was a lot of rhetoric about money that had been wasted on the particular way that school um, building schools for the future worked because they were very keen on sort of participation of the individual school communities. Um, whether that actually happened is a bit of a moot point, but you know, that was the theory. And the individualised sort of tailored designs specific to that school. Um, so we say we had a change of government and suddenly we, you know, this was a waste of time and what we needed was just to, to build the right schools nice and cheaply all over the place. So as I really interesting sort of politics as well underlying this. And I try not to get too, too caught up in the politics, but um, but then you get called upon by someone saying, so, yeah, so tell us, does it matter what the school building's like? And, you know, what's the ideal school building? And yeah, so that, that, was my, that was my background. That's what I brought to it, I think. Nice. Um, so then as we turn to the book itself, uh, maybe you could actually, and you sort of alluded to some of this, when you you have multiple different perspectives on what the learning environment is, maybe you could tell us about how do you define the learning environment and then which piece do you find most interesting? I think it is the fact that it is so complex and there is this, it's all about the relationship between the people and the material, the built space. And that works both ways. So if you've got a certain sort of space, you're more inclined to use it in particular ways. But equally, if as an educator, you've got very definite ideas about what you want to do, you can rearrange your space to an extent to facilitate that. So, you know, you're, you go into your classroom as a classroom teacher um, and all the desks are in rows. If what you want to do is stand at the front and talk at people, then that's great. You think, well, that's really good. This is this is arranged terribly efficiently. Whereas, of course, if you actually think, well, what I was I was wanting to do some project based learning today, um, or I want them to work in small groups, and you you, know, you you rearrange the tables. So, and that's that. But that show is that makes it sound very simplistic and individual. You know, you have this teacher in this classroom. They've got the the school as an organisation, what are they trying to achieve? And then, you know, again, at the policy level, what's what's the government telling them they're supposed to be trying to achieve and how they're supposed to be trying to do it? Um, but that's I, I think that's the complexity that makes it so interesting and so much fun. Um, so the book actually came out of a conference that we organised here in Newcastle back in 2011, can you believe? <laughs> so this was just after we had the change of government and Building Schools for the Future got cancelled. And everybody, so it was a really great moment to say, right, what do we know about um, school design? And my, my plan with the conference was always to get people from both architecture and education and also people who had a, you know, who sort of sat in both houses had a bit of a view of school buildings coming from both perspectives but I always wanted to have some people there who were really sort of hard-nosed um, educationalists or hard-nosed architects but were at least interested enough in school buildings to come to my conference and then the idea was to put them all and get similarly we wanted the participants to be from both an education background and an architecture background which we we achieved reasonably well I think we had more educationalists because we've got more contacts in education but we had, I mean, I can think of offhand a, a local, very sort of small scale, you know, he's a sort of lone practitioner of an architect who came to the conference and we're still in touch. And he does, he's done some work with some schools and, uh, and other um, sort of youth groups locally. So, yeah, I, I, I think we got the right people in the room and it, and it did work. That was the plan was to, you know, build these understandings between architecture and education and particularly that was the morning was going to be sort of architects and educationists giving their perspective on school buildings. And then in the afternoon, basically, it was 
you know, participation as, as a potential solution, because if your problem is you've got people with very different views on school buildings, then you get them to talk to each other in simple terms and get them working together, collaborating. And that must at least it, it throws into relief the problems you've got, the things you don't understand. And you can begin to, to try to solve it rather than just talking past each other. Well, that was the theory of the conference. Yeah, and the book grew out of that. We, we, had, we enjoyed ourselves so much on that, just a single day in Newcastle. Um, we enjoyed ourselves so much that we said, well, we must try and get a book out of this. So because it was clearly an interdisciplinary thing, um, I initially got turned down by an educational publisher, which was quite interesting, went to Routledge, and it's their architecture people who, who picked it up. So it's actually published in architecture, which... Given I'm in education, I thought it was great fun and really proved that I really was interdisciplinary. <laughs> That's one of my favorite conversations about space is that it really brings in the designers, the architects, the mm. teachers, the community. Um, and I really appreciated your book that it brought in those different perspectives. Um, so when you think about the chapters in the book, maybe you could talk us through a little bit um, of either a couple chapters that you found that you learned the most from or that you thought were more interesting because there's there are chapters about the history of school buildings there are chapters more focused on policy um maybe you could pick out a few of those and just describe those for us yeah i mean i think because again because the, i come from an ed, ed, predominant education perspective the ones i really enjoyed were the ones written by architects um and as again, building on the conference where I did give the architects pretty much free reign, you know, come along and be architectural at me um, or at us. Um, they then did that in the book. So, I mean, the, I, I do still love the, the chapter that Peter Blundell Jones um, did did for I mean, he was he was brilliant um, on the day, and then he was he was really good at producing a chapter. Um, so, really, sort of, I, was t I don't know if you've um, you'd, you'd heard Peter Blundell Jones died a couple of years ago, which I was I was quite. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and he was, and he was great to work on with this. He was, and again, because I'd originally asked him, um, I had some contacts, and I'd asked him to come to the conference, and I wasn't sure if he'd say yes because he was really quite a sort of grand, and I wanted somebody who would be impressive to architects. So I thought, oh, I'll get Peter Blundell Jones. I think he's impressive. Do you know when you're trying to impress outside your area, you don't really know who's impressive. So yeah. I asked. And he and he came and was marvellous. And then I, as I say, I, I returned to his chapter, although putting it together was quite hard work because he had all these um, wonderful plans and images, you know, taken from all sorts of interesting historic sources. And of course, you know, he kept saying to me, "Oh yeah, I've, I've got I've got permissions." And then when it came to it at the end, the, the Routledge editor would say, have you really got permissions for all of the chapters? <laughs> have you really got, well, no, it's a bit tricky and I'll, I'll, I'll email somebody. And anyway, in the end, we finally got all the permissions or we sorted it all out. But I do remember that chapter, I, yeah, I remember it very fondly putting it together. Um, and I still think it's a really nice one to go back to. I, I mean, I, I refer, because I teach a couple of, um, I give a couple of lectures on our history of education undergrad course for our first year undergrads. And, and so I do a couple of, of sessions on school buildings. And I mean, one of the people I refer to in this chapter, because I think it's quite a nice, quick, quick and easy read. But it really does give you that sort of architectural perspective um, on the development of school buildings through the sort of 19th century and into the 20th century, mainly in the UK. Yeah, with a few European examples beyond the UK. Um, so yeah, I always send people to that. 
Um, what else do I like? You know, on the topic on the topic of that chapter, I think the pictures really do from the the blueprint side or the the visual pictures of the buildings, um, and I think that's one of the challenges in school design and in communicating school design, in particularly in articles or in books, how you blend pictures and pictures of participation and diagrams. Uh, maybe if you could have any insight on that, how do you think about communicating that relationship between people in the space? Well, I mean, I always, yeah, pictures always help in my opinion. I mean, um, the only link really with what I'm doing now with my original um, doctorate, which was, was in maths education, what I was actually looking at was the um, how we can use sort of visual stuff in maths to help with maths teaching and learning. So you see there is a link. Yeah. And so I have, you know, had this interest um, in, you know, how we use the visual. And I, I, I'm always amazed how much it helps having, you know, plans and images when you're talking to people about school buildings, which is is, is blindingly obvious to it, to architects. So this is another way there's such a, a you know, sort of disciplinary difference that, you know, in education, we talk about, you know, all visual research methods and photo elicitation. And then, you know, you mention this to architects and they think, well, they sort of reply, well, how would you talk to somebody about a building without some pictures and some plans? You think, well, yeah, good point. And it does make you realise how, you know, there's a tendency for education to be very sort of, you know, verbal dominated, sort of wordy. Um, I can talk as well, mind you, as you can probably. Um, so, yes, pictures. I mean, I, Routledge were very good on this book because they I can't remember how many pictures they allowed us. As long as we stayed in black and white, not in colour, um, we could have pretty much as many pictures as we wanted. And they're, they're, they're you know, they're all reproduced really well. I mean, I, I think you know, the images do look good. Um, what was another interesting thing on the different the disciplinary difference in attitudes sort of visualising and diagramming? was that the last chapter that I wrote together with Jennifer Singer, who of course is an architect, I mean, I was just amazed how many diagrams she wanted. And she, she was really good at saying, oh, I, th I think we need a diagram here to help us think. And it wasn't just to present our thinking, it was to help us think in the first place. So, yeah, I, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I wouldn't necessarily have thought to put it in a diagram, you know, or use a diagram to help us think together. And it's, yeah, it is what I'm always saying about, you know, collaboration. That, the nice thing about having something visual is you can you can both look at it, which say seems a bit crude, but actually I think is a lot of how visual methodology works in in research and you know and in participatory design. So that actually is a really nice segue that I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but um, so how do you think about the participatory design of school spaces as? Um, different or more valuable than, say, the design of something like a schedule or curriculum, which is a little bit more abstract? Is there something about the physicality of spaces that lends itself to participatory design? Yes, I think it can do. And I certainly it's easier to think how you can make use of visuals when you're talking about the space rather than, as you say, something like curriculum. But of course, once you're you're thinking about diagrams rather than images actually diagramming can be really helpful in terms of thinking about um yeah how ideas fit together and that could potentially be used in fact i have on um, curriculum's a good example because i have seen some nice diagrams of sort of things like you know people have these um sort of cyclical curriculums where you know you, you come back round on the same idea curricula um 
and yeah that can be diagrammed quite usefully I think so yeah I think there's a potential but it's you're right the, the space is a particularly obvious way you know where participatory design can make use of of images really quite obviously um, but I don't think we should be limited to that and I'm just thinking as well I've um I've done you know I've, I've never actually written with but I've done quite a lot of conference presentations with Anna Christine um from Iceland who's I'm not going to try and do justice to her to her, her, her second name but anyway Anna Christine um she was involved with a school um just on the edge of Reykjavik that was designed by Bruce Jilk using his design down principle and there's a lovely image she's got of how some of the, the teachers initially did do sort of diagramming of how they were going to organize the classes in terms of you know this many children so sort of ta you know tape tabular form and that was some of the first what they sort of worked with and then so they they, they had this idea that you know, if we're going to organize the classes and the teachers in this way um what does that imply for the building so they, they did make a good use of and it was, you know, participatory. It was, um, you know, the designer, the, the designers, and the teachers sitting down together and talking about what they wanted from the school. Interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about participation. So in your chapter, you talk about Arnstein's ladder. Oh yes. Um, yeah, maybe you could. That's tell a good visual imagery, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it is. And and uh, the idea of a ladder is really something that I think sticks in your head. But then you turn that into a three dimensional um sort of cube to to illustrate <laughs> yeah. your point so if you could talk to us a little bit about that okay well I mean loads of people have have critiqued Einstein for saying well you know it's a ladder is very simplistic you know this idea that you're you're higher or lower on a ladder I mean and I still think for the people who critique her I always say well have you read the original article because it is brilliant and I always send people to the original article um because it's it's also a lot more I think you know really quite annoyed than I think lots of research that we read in, in education um, of course you know she was in um, planning and it was about participation planning and decisions being made without properly involving the people who are going to live in in an, in an area so yeah so Arnstein was great but you can critique it because it is this single direction and years ago when we were doing the impact of school environments the literature review we talked there about it not just being um the sort of level of involvement but sort of who's involved i think that was the point we made we went we went off in another dimension anyway and we came up with a sort of matrix and then when um jen and i were sort of you know talking about participation we said well it's you know it's 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 the it's the who it's the what and it's the sort of you know, when in the process because as an architect she was very aware of the sort of process of you know initial ideas and visioning and then planning and then construct so she she had that sort of sense so yeah so then we said oh great we've got three dimensions so we need, we need a three-dimensional diagram and then of course because yeah we're talking about school buildings it seemed appropriate to suggest it as the um climbing frame <laughs> which yeah yeah so we went yes we, we so we stuck with broadly Arnstein's sort of levels of participation going up the climbing frame and then we had the sort of different people in school going one way across and then the sort of time through the process um going the other way um and Jen did actually draw the climbing frame <laughs> and I think she sent me an earlier version I said oh, no that's not quite how I imagined it <laughs> Well, and again, those those representations make a big difference in terms of communicating and designing together. 
Yes, yes. I think in an original, early on, she had a little sort of sketch she did um, where they actually had little people climbing on the climbing frame, but that didn't get in the final version, which is a bit of a shame. So you have to imagine little people climbing on the climbing frame. Excellent. I will I will draw that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so I think the question that I often get about the physical spaces, and I know that you've thought a lot about, is do you design the space first and then put people in it to make them change or do you change people and then give them the new space so that they can carry out their changes <laughs> yeah neither neither you do you do something cyclical if you if you can I think um and yeah I mean we've the, the history of school design is littered with examples of how putting people in a space in an attempt to change what they do doesn't work you might make some difference but I mean the, you know the big the, the lovely example is open plan um, in the UK and US we've got the research to show that a lot of the teachers weren't using that as it was intended um, some were I mean the research also shows that some teachers who were obviously very keen on this way of working or able to adapt did adapt but lots of teachers understandably who'd been used to shutting the door and putting themselves in an enclosed classroom with 30 kids suddenly being in some sort of semi-open space sharing with other classes um, and with other teachers and trying to do some sort of team teaching of a big group I mean that's a that's a really very different setting so you're not going to overnight achieve change just by putting them in the the open plan space so you you certainly don't want to do that um, on the other hand it is true that having a different space can really inspire you and if you're you know, if you understand what the change is supposed to be about and again it's back to participation because you know if you're involved in planning it and thinking about it then you get in this new and different space and you say this is marvelous I you know I can use this space to do different things preferably you you know have a space that maybe isn't finished um, I know architects quite like the idea of spaces that are unfinished and you know, then you can make them fit yourself. I think the danger with that is you end up with a space that's not really appropriate to anything. Um, but I mean, again, going back to the book, I mean, the, the chapter in it by Neil Gislason, I mean, his sort of framework of the, you know, the sort of the, the physical stuff, the sort of organisational stuff, the, the staff culture and the student sort of dynamics. Essentially, you have got to line all those up. And you're not going to massively change one of them without changing the others. Or if you try to, it won't work. So and I, I did talk to Neil quite a lot about his examples. So the exam, one of the examples he uses in the book, which he studied in his doctorate. So this was the School of Environmental Studies. Um, and he said, well, that was interesting because they planned the, the physical school side by side with planning the interdisciplinary approach they were going to take the team teaching they were going to do so every he, he said they did work it all out all together and he thinks that's why it's you know it's, it's it continues to be successful as far as I know yeah so it's that side by side planning and I think as you mentioned um, that the spaces often get forgotten by the <laughs> educationalist and so bringing that into a framework um yes yes and it's, it's yeah yeah getting education and I mean that yeah that, that's a really important bit is getting everybody to think and, and talk about the space um yeah I mean I, I mean I, I was quite pleased I mean this is the sort of ideas I've been thinking about for ages and I finally got a um an article out recently into the um journal of educational change which is this you know how the space the space matters but it's not everything essentially um, and I, I was very keen to get it into the journal of educational change I've had things published previously in the journal of um, you know learning environments research 
but I wanted to put this in front of people who hadn't thought about the educational space. Um, so people who are interested, who are coming from the change angle. And so articles in that journal are often about sort of, you know, how you management issues of change or, you know, changing curricula, that sort of thing. So this, this idea of putting it in there and saying, look, the space can be part of this as well. That was what I was really aiming to do. So I was so pleased when they, they accepted that. And in that article, I really do try to, you know, I've, I've got two examples of schools more and less successfully where they, they did manage a sort of, you know, quite a big change in how they did things. And the space was an important part of that. But there was loads of other stuff that was happening as well. So the space was sort of supporting. It. And again, it's this cyclical idea that you, know, you do some initial things with the space to support what you're wanting to do. But then, of course, that helps you to continue doing it and maybe do more of it or do it even more you know, completely. So yeah, that's <laughs> which is is sort of yeah that's the trouble. It's not a it's not a quick fix solution, and I think that's always the problem because people want to sort of go on. Then what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Well, you know, you need to spend you know quite a lot of time thinking about this, talking about it, and progressively develop your space and everything else as well. Um, all all sort of enmeshed and integrated, and it's going to take years. <laughs> that's not. <laughs> Yeah, and we started this with talking about policy and governments, and that mm -hmm. isn't typically... No, the, that's really not the answer the government wants. <laughs> yeah, but I do find it that schools spend so much money and governments spend so much money on these spaces, and so having that crossover conversation that you talk about, you know, that brought the book together, mm -hmm. those are so important to break down those silos and have people talking um, across. So if you have, for our listeners, what what are your suggestions for initiating and having productive conversations across um, different disciplines? Um, well, you get people together. I think in the most yeah most simply again, if you go back to the simple solutions, you get people together. You get them taught. I mean that's and that's the nice thing about a school is it does present both architectural design problems or issues or challenges um, and educational ones so you know getting people together to talk about you know what are we going to do here um, and it could be a specific school and we've, we've been working with a school for quite some years now that's um, been sort of fiddling around making changes to its physical space um, and I've you know been sort of facilitating the teachers getting really involved with that and getting to the point where they would you know they will talk about what could be done here what can we do differently rather than just sort of accepting the space that they're lumbered with um, so yeah so that so it could be at the level of a specific school but of course you can also just you know have events that get people together and you know come up with things for them to do which require both architectural design expertise and educational expertise and I think you know that those sorts of conversations, um, yeah, you, they could happen at all sorts of levels. And that would get, go back to the book. That's what I liked about the book is that we, yeah, we had this really great day of conversations and then we managed to get some of that into the book. And I'm so pleased we got it down in the book because otherwise by now it would just be me saying, oh, a long time ago in 2011, we had this really good conference. <laughs> well, and that I think, again, that is really what makes the book so rich is all those different perspectives on it. Mm -hmm. um, well, Pam, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, so before we go, though, we'd love to know what new projects you're working on. You talked about your article in the Journal of Educational Change, which I would definitely recommend for our listeners. Um, where where do you go from here? <laughs> yeah, so the writing is one thing. I think yeah, writing stuff down. I mean, I'm so, as I said, you, you picked this up because you you found the book, whereas, you know, you, you didn't come to the conference in 2011. So um, even, you know, the 
modern world of lots of other things to do like podcasts I mean there's still there's a place for academic writing and just putting things down on paper so that they you know they survive uh so yes yeah, so I'm writing you know did the journal of educational change I've got a cu- I've got three chapters coming out actually in some various edited books um but in terms of sort of practical research I'm more and more concerned that we try to come up with ways of sort of evaluating and understanding schools in use so that you can sort of make better use of them. I mean, I think, you know, most simplistically that's understood as post-occupancy evaluation, but it's it's also what schools do all the time. You know, what, you know, certainly the the more sort of senior people in school are saying, you know, what, what have we got here? What could we do with it differently? How are we using it? So ways of doing that. And that's, yeah, that's the whole problem writ large of, you know, education and architectural design, understanding each other. The other thing I've become more and more interested in is outdoor learning. And this is partly because we've got a bit of a rise of enthusiasm in outdoor learning in the UK. It's also because with the change of government and the change of um, the school building programme, you know, there's not as much freedom within the design of the physical building under the new priority school building programme. Um, and there's just not as much money being spent and not as many schools are going to get refurbs so I think quite a lot of schools have been looking at their outdoor space because you can do quite a lot relatively cheaply in an outdoor space and certainly schools that are dissatisfied with their indoor space sometimes think oh well maybe we get the kids outside and we can do some of this learning we want to do outdoors so I've got a colleague Lucy Tipley lady who I've worked with you know for quite a few years now and she's particularly interested in outdoor learning so I'm sort of hoping that you know we might manage to get something you know some, some sort of practical work looking at outdoor outdoor learning. Um, well thank you Pam and thanks everyone for listening to this interview again um, you this is the New Books Network in Education and we've been talking with Pam Wollner who is a senior lecturer in education at Newcastle University. Thank you very much. <laughs>